protests are happening all over the world, from Hong Kong to Chile to the United States itself. Also, the U.S. military needs to prepare for future conflicts in an ever-changing environment. How do they plan? How do they prepare? This is the Global in the Granite State podcast, and I'm Tim Horgan, the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. There are over 25 different countries that are experiencing global protests over the past two months. That was a little bit of audio from different protest movements in Hong Kong and Chile and other countries around the world. So we're here to talk a little bit about that. I am Tim Horgan, the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council. And I'm Michael Pappas, the Events and Education Coordinator for the World Affairs Council. So we were thinking that this month we would talk a little bit about all of the different protest movements going on around the world. Don't worry, we won't talk about every single one, but at least give a little bit of a background into why so many of these protest movements are happening, what it is about them that is driving them, and if there are any similarities between the different protest movements. So Mike, you wanted to talk a little bit about the different protest movements. Here I created a bit of a list. We've got Hong Kong, Indonesia, the Netherlands, France, Peru, Haiti, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Israel, the U.S., Chile, Iran, Bolivia, and many more. I won't go through them all, but seems like there's a lot of stuff going on around the world. And what did you see when researching the different trends? What you usually see with a lot of these protest movements, and it's hard to really narrow down some of the commonalities because the cultures, differences from around the world, but it is very interesting to see these commonalities that pop up despite the differences between all these countries. Oftentimes these uh, protests usually break out because of a sort of catalyzing event or policy change by the government. very common one that has led to a lot of these protests is usually an economic change in these countries. For example, Iran uh, announced that they were slashing fuel subsidies. Actually, a very common one is the slashing of fuel subsidies and the increase of gas prices in these countries. Yeah, I know Haiti, France, Chile, all were experiencing that just off the top of my head, which is kind of interesting that that is such a touch point for people. Yeah, and it really goes back to the very understandable reason that a lot of these protests sort of pop up is the most close to home issue is the one that really catalyzes people to go to the streets and something you often see is that once people get to the streets and start these protests the list of their issues that they're really 
trying to see change in and reforms on, understandably grow. For a lot of these countries, these demands have often grown from the economic to the political realm and protesting against corruption, cronyism, and a lot of mismanagement in the government. And you even see a lot of protests where these protests sort of started because of those issues. Some of the protests use this catalyzing economic event and economic change to go towards that place, but even some countries such as Russia actually had a series of protests over the summer due to the ruling government preventing opposition candidates from running in city council elections. Another example, Algeria. In February, their protests started because their long-running president, Bouteflika, actually announced that he was going to run for president again, despite his age and declining health and that he had previously said he would not run again. Those protests were against that announcement and he eventually resigned two months later in April. But even then, the list of demands tend to grow as people get to the streets and they coordinate more often on social media. These common places that protesters can get their ideas together and it makes sense why this tends to happen. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that I've been seeing in a lot of these is the idea of a leaderless protest, that these protests are springing up mm-hmm. generally through social media. You have a lot of different people who are sort of taking the lead on this, but there's no one main leader for these protests. How is that challenging some of the government responses? That's certainly a very common occurrence in most of these protest movements. I would say we often saw that when it came to the Arab Spring at the outset of this decade. But these leaderless protests are certainly hampering government efforts to quell protests and quell these massive demonstrations oftentimes. And it comes with its pros and it comes with its cons. The leaderless protests, say, in Hong Kong, came out of a response to their protests five years ago in 2014, where the government response was to immediately jail the leaders of these protests, and the protests, understandably, were quelled. But learning from that experience five years ago, Hong Kong decided this time around to not have that sort of leadership to prevent that very common response to protests, which is take out the leadership. It's a very centralized plan for protests and it's easy to cut them off. Another thing you see though is that leaderless protests on the flip side of that sort of struggle with longevity and long-term goals because when you don't have a leader, it's tough to transition out of the protest phase. We have certain examples of this in Sudan. They had trouble initially because they had a leaderless protest and they forced out their president, Bashir, which led to a military takeover and then protests continued into that. And then there was a struggle over getting the military to give up the power that they had seized. And it was tough to have a central speaker to be the voice for these protests and make sure that protesters' demands were heard. One of the protests movements at the center of the current protest cycle, one could say, long-standing has been Haiti. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of reading on Haiti and their protest. It's amazing you speak about the longevity of protests and one of the things that the Haiti protest certainly has is longevity, having started really in full force back in 2018, but has been something that's simmering for quite a while now. The goals of this protest are really just to have 
President Moise stepped down. They are really upset about inflation, corruption, scarcity of basic goods. They think that president has not been representative of what they want to see in their country back in the early 2000s all the way up until now really they've been wanting to see an increase in benefits that they're seeing because it's not a good situation in in Haiti as many people know these protests really have ramped up in the past couple months back from September 16th to September 30th. There were 17 people killed and 187 people injured. The big thing that they're really focusing in on, one of the big things as we talked about was the end of fuel subsidies. There are a couple things that have gone into this. One being the failure of the Petrocarib loan program, which was a Venezuelan loan program and Venezuela, understandably, is having their their own issues and their own protests that are causing challenges to that loan program. But after that loan program ended, the government tried to reduce fuel subsidies, prices skyrocketed in a country that has seen the cost of living increase by 74% since 2014. 74%, which is just crazy. The national debt is at record levels, international aid is being cut off, people are really unhappy about the state of affairs and have lost pretty much all faith in politics in general. Back in 2016, when President Moise was elected, only 21% of people turned out to vote, which we complain about voter turnout here in the U.S., but that is on a whole nother scale. Again, corruption is really rampant. Back to the Petrocarib funds, the opposition party in Haiti claims that $2 million in loan funds were given to the country and no major improvements were created. And so their accusation is that President Moise and his associates stole all of that money. They also accuse him of vote buying in the last election. But Haiti, according to Transparency International, is ranked 161st out of 180 countries in their 2018 survey of global corruption. So certainly corruption is a big issue here and really one of the main factors that is leading this protest. And finally, one of the big things that they want is they want foreign countries to stop meddling in their affairs. They want foreign countries to support them, to ask them what it is that they need, what it is they want and how countries and organizations can help them chart their own future. Obviously, this is a situation that is not working for many people. More than half the population lives below the poverty line of 2.4 US dollars a day. Minimum wage for export apparel workers, which are some of the highest paid people, one of the largest industries in Haiti, are paid $5.07 per day which is four times less than the cost of living in that country. So certainly a lot of issues for them to deal with. There does not seem to be any end in sight. President Moise has actually kind of gone missing. His one public address was a pre-recorded 2 a.m. address that was put out on TV, and he has not really been public in ways in which he's working to quell these protests and to alleviate some of the ills that these people have been expressing. Having said all that, I'm really interested in your research into the Netherlands and their farmers' protests. 
the pictures of the streets of The Hague just jam-packed full of farmers and their yeah. tractors has really been interesting. It certainly has been, and it's certainly a very unique protest, speaking of this sort of global protest cycle currently. And as you said, it makes for some intriguing pictures and some intriguing views. So back in May, the Dutch Council of State, which is actually an advisory body in the country, when the government cabinet wants to propose a law to the Dutch parliament, they have to get the approval of the Council of State. So it's a pretty important advisory body in this country. But in May, they actually ruled that sort of existing regulations on nitrogen dioxide and ammonia emissions weren't strict enough. And they were saying that the requirements on reducing these emissions needed to be strengthened to fight climate change. And on the back of these claims that the emissions needed to be reduced, there was sort of an undertone that farmers and the agricultural industry in the Netherlands were the biggest culprit of these emissions. And certainly, if the government was going to impose stricter regulations on reducing these emissions, the farmers were going to be the worst hit by it. So after the ruling in May, farmers started protesting because they perceived that they were being vilified for their emissions. And after that ruling in May, there was growing discontent within the agricultural community. And then at the end of September, early October, the farmers took to the streets in their tractors, as you mentioned in those very interesting pictures. Well, and what better way to say that we are not the problem of climate change by packing the streets full of tractors that are emitting more emissions? Yeah, and part of that, in packing the streets with these tractors, they caused over 700 miles of traffic jams, which I wouldn't want to be caught in. Right. And, I mean... Traffic jams are the worst for emissions when you're talking about emissions from vehicles. Certainly didn't go much in the way of supporting their cause as much, but they did have 15,000 farmers that drove to the center of The Hague to protest with their tractors. And as you saw the pictures, it certainly makes for a good photo and a good exposure for their movement. And even recently, we've seen uh, more protests of farmers picketing motorways and we've seen more action from the government to try to reveal their plans on how to reduce these emissions and we have farmer groups like the Farmers Defense Force and Lenbau Collectif who have put out alternate plans sort of saying that the best way to reduce these emissions is to allow farmers to voluntarily adjust their working practices to sort of cut the emissions rather than have the government come in and force the farmers to change the way they work. So you bring up 15,000 protesters in the streets of The Hague. I'll counter with Pakistan that saw tens of thousands of protesters in a two-week-long protest just this month where opposition political leaders are urging people to work towards ousting Prime Minister Imran Khan. They say that he's a puppet of the military, that the elections last year were a sham election, that the military really stuffed the ballot boxes and things of that nature to make sure that they would have control of the government. There is some serious concerns about 
the military and its control over politics in Pakistan. In the 70 years of Pakistan's existence, about half of that time has been led by military dictatorships or democratically, in quotes, elected military leaders taking power. There is some real concern here about what the role for the military in Pakistan should be. One of the interesting things about this is that in the past several years, civil society really has been growing in Pakistan, and it has been working to reduce the power of the military, which is something that the military is actually reasonably concerned about. So there is this sort of interesting dynamic. It seems like it is a bit of a political move by the opposition parties to gain power, but also really looking at taking the opportunity to talk about a real problem that they want to use for their own political gains. There is this mutual mistrust between politicians and the military, which is really at the core of what these protests are about, which makes it kind of unique and interesting in that it's not about fuel subsidies, it's not about economics, it's not about corruption in the sense of other countries like Haiti, where millions of dollars go missing every year. But what you do see is this real concern by the military about strengthening of political culture and civil society, where civilians for the first time in 70 years are directly criticizing the military over their human rights abuses, over their extra constitutional decisions that they make, and things of that nature. And the politicians are worried about the military rule because they don't want to go back to these military dictatorships that they've seen over the years. And what the opposition is saying is, well, Prime Minister Khan is just a puppet of the military, so we are basically back to military control. There is a bit of a concern over a failing economy. They feel that the growth of the Pakistani economy has not kept pace with countries within the region. They are still claiming that the government is illegitimate and that the military has installed Khan and controls him. The final piece that really makes this interesting is what's going on in Kashmir. So India, a few months ago, tried to assert more control over the disputed region, and that obviously has been a very big touch point between those two countries over the past several decades. So a lot of people in Pakistan have not been happy about how Pakistan has responded to that. They feel that there has not been a strong enough response to India's efforts to take more control over that area, and that Pakistan should be more forceful in their responses to what's going on there. Yeah, and I actually think it's an interesting final point that you brought up, though, by mentioning Kashmir, because on one side, when we were talking about the cons of leaderless protests, part of the strength of new protests in the past decade has also come with a new strength of governments to combat it. A lot of these protests have used social media and the internet at the center of their organizing power. And in Kashmir, one of the government responses to protests against their decision was cut off internet, prevent any information of what was going on in the region from getting out. Iran, on November 15th, when the fuel subsidies were announced, a day later, internet was cut off. And you have seen this in several countries. China has the Great Firewall. It's prevented a lot of information from coming out of the Xinjiang region, the Uyghur minorities and the de detention camps. And so we see that while protest strategies have changed, 
the government strategies of combating protests have certainly changed along with it. And it'll be interesting to see how all these protests sort of play out and which side of that coin will come out on top. Great. Well, thanks so much, Mike, for joining us for that discussion. I want to switch gears a little bit now. I met Lieutenant Colonel Butler at the World Affairs Councils of America National Meeting. Matt works with the Air Force's warfighting integration capability in order to look at the future of warfare. I wanted to share his story and provide a little bit of insight into the future. The future U.S. Air Force is one that's going to be centered around multi-domain operations. That is Matthew Butler, a lieutenant colonel with the Air Force Warfighting Integration Capability. What that means is that we're going to execute the strategy as outlined in our National Defense Strategy of 2018 to stand up a force that can fight in, through, and from all domains. That's air, land, sea, space, cyber, electromagnetic, and that we're going to be able to connect those into a network to be able to harness any of those advantages we have in those domains towards target sets, towards awareness, to maintain our competitive advantage against a peer state competitor. Before we went any further, the lieutenant colonel wanted to make sure that this disclaimer was on the record. These views are my own. They're my own personal views and do not represent the U.S. Air Force, Department of Defense, or U.S. government as a whole. A few days ago, we spoke over the phone about his work at the Air Force Warfighting Integration Capability and how he is helping to plan for the future of national defense. The Air Force Warfighting Integration Capability is a organization that is underneath Headquarters U.S. Air Force that is really unique in how it can reach out and communicate and connect across the total force when it comes to innovation, design, new technology and make sure that folks can talk to each other, that folks know what others are working on within the same areas of expertise to mitigate against stovepiping, redundancy, to try to suggest ways to help allocate our resources to achieve our goals towards a more lethal and agile Air Force overall. So we're a group of people who are in several divisions focusing on disruptive technology, functional integration, innovative solutions, design blueprint, which is our future Air Force design. And then I work within Futures and Concepts Division, which focuses on more of the 20-year war in 2038 and 39 on how the Air Force can best maintain a strategic advantage over peer competitors. As we look ahead to the national security challenges that will face the nation, One area that will take a lot of effort and attention is the shift from fighting a mainly counterterrorism battle to preparing for near-peer competition. Since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. has not really been challenged by another state actor and has focused its strategy and attention on counterinsurgency efforts. With a rise in China's power and a resurgent Russia, the military is going to need to restructure and refocus their efforts. To do that, we're looking at designing air and space forces right? Because space is the ultimate high ground that are designed to compete, deter, and win. To face that peer competitor, to deter them from any sort of aggressive objectives, and then to win if need be. 
And we're trying to conceptualize that through enabling concepts such as joint all-domain command and control. Some folks may have heard of JADC2. JADC2, for those of you who might not know, is an effort by the four military branches to connect their communications and data sharing capabilities on the battlefield something that will allow better joint operations and faster decision-making. And space superiority, generating combat power. We're trying to have a resilient network stopping invading forces and not allowing for the leg time, you know, moving huge masses of combat forces to the front like you might have seen in Desert Storm. But instead, what can we do to make this as quick and resilient and survivable as possible? So those are enabling concepts to our overall multi-domain operations that the U.S. Air Force is moving towards. To get a better sense of what multi-domain command and control is, Lieutenant Colonel Butler offered this example. When I talk about multi-domain operations and JADC2, Joint All-Domain Command and Control, if you've ever called an Uber or a Lyft, you are doing multi-domain command and control. You're using your phone to call through space that then positions a closest vehicle available to you that is within the network system to then go to your location and pick you up. That is multi-domain command and control right there. However, space presents its own challenges. Well, space is crowded. As people read in the news, we have more and more uh, commercial entities that are launching, SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin and you know, numerous others who are getting into the rocketry and satellite business and payload delivery. But not only uh, commercial, but also you have our peer competitors that maintain their space launch programs and our allies and partners that have space programs and satellite networks. So space can be crowded. And also when you think about space debris, a satellite bumps into something and pieces come off or rocks uh, hit it up there. It, it can create a years-long debris hazard that is hurtling at thousands of miles an hour in orbit. So these are, these are real hazards that we have to keep in mind as far as our situational awareness in space, but also our situational awareness from space to the ground. And also our cyber systems that go through satellite links. You know, this phone call that we're making right now is enabled by space and cyber working together. One of the challenges to this integration is the wide variety of technologies being implemented across forces. Technology doesn't just arrive (laughs) all on Christmas Day, all 5th gen, 6th gen, and you unwrap it and it all talks to each other. So even commercially, we have our bugs in the system until the patches can come through. So getting analog to talk to digital, to talking to, let's say, quantum someday, or whatnot. That is a huge challenge. And we do have people who work on those projects to get different generations of technology to work on. I'm not an engineer or a project manager for those operations. I know that we do have smart folks working on that, a multi-generational networking of those systems. And it is going to be uh, one of our big challenges going forward because this is not a, for lack of a better term, all on Christmas Day, technological package of all domain command and control and awareness. Speaking of multi-generational technology, the demographic of new recruits is changing. Many of the people entering the military today grew up with smartphones, and this is changing the way they are able to consume and process information. Strategies for engaging these people must also change. It's not just the bringing them in, it's a change in, in how we even train and operate 
those individuals. You and I may be the digital immigrants, but you know we have digital natives now. I've had airmen at my last unit, you know, reporting in that we're born in 1999, you know, year 2000. So you're exactly right. They've had a screen and have this intuitive nature their entire lives when it comes to technology being part of their lives. The Internet of Things is not a weird thing for them because they're used to their phone talking to the speakers in their house, which then orders something for them, which then arrives at their doorstep that they can you know, use. They're used to streaming and not going to necessarily a red box or getting a DVD in the mail. So how they use that technology is really interesting and the ideas they can come up with it. We're looking at ways of training in virtual reality. It gets a lot of attention when it's shown, you know, fighting simulators because people can relate to first-person shooter games that they play on their Xbox or, or PlayStation, but also things like turning wrenches on aircraft or fixing a widget. Those are the sorts of things that you can train on in virtual reality, not just flying fighter jets. Along with new technology comes new fears. Many people and organizations are worried about the use of artificial intelligence by militaries, both foreign and domestic. Lieutenant Colonel Butler has a different take on it. The main point about artificial intelligence is what are we trying to achieve with it? And what are our potential adversaries trying to achieve with it? And when it comes to artificial intelligence, what does that hopefully get you? Well, hopefully gains you speed. And hopefully speed will lend to decision advantage. So speed in calculations, speed in your algorithms which can then give you a decision advantage, hopefully, against a peer competitor or a peer in the AI arena to outthink them faster than what they can catch on to you. That's when we get into the OODA loop that you hear sometimes military people refer to, observe, orient, determine, and act. So that decisional cycle of trying to make those calculations, and we're trying to do that with our joint all-domain command and control, that JADC2, in digitally aided distributed operating capabilities. I know that sounds like a PowerPoint bullet statement, but being able to take all that information through the network, maybe with AI, don't know, so much of it is so theoretical at this point, with a person on the loop, not out of the loop, but there will be hopefully a person there, that is within that loop that can then help determine those thousands of calculations in hundreds of hours. That's what artificial intelligence really, at least I think, coming from me, gets you is speed to decision advantage on a peer competitor. And within that, and when people talk about their fears, I was at World Affairs Conference where uh, Dr. Ming, who is a specialist in those areas, talked about artificial intelligence. And one of the things that she said that stuck with me was that artificial intelligence cannot solve a problem that you, the human, does not already know how to solve. It's just doing it more quickly and taking in the data points for a bit of intuitiveness, but it is not solving problems that you are not thinking of as well. Of course, I couldn't help but ask about the potential for killer robots in the near future. No, I don't, I don't, think, I don't <laughs> think the Terminator is coming from the future to take <laughs> us out. Looking at a more realistic issue, cyber conflict is certainly a growing threat, particularly as the military continues to network its systems. This is an area where a lot of unintended consequences can pop up. With cyber, you can look at it as part of an all-domain defense. It's very easy for us to conceptualize ground-based defense in the Air Force or air-based defense in the Air Force, you know. 
incoming small UAVs or drones, incoming missiles, or people on the ground trying to attack your base, or those sorts of things. Cyber is a little bit more difficult to visualize, even sometimes amongst people in different branches of it. So with cyber, a lot of what we're seeing is perhaps maybe, you know, how do we reconceptualize what a base defender is for defending an air base? You know, I come from a career field security forces where an air base defender was very clear cut as far as what they were. An air base ground defender defends the mission operating envelope around an air base to secure that mission and its assets and its ability to achieve its objectives. But the future air base defender is going to be across all domains. And, and what does that mean? What is the mindset? What is the person that we're going to try to recruit? to be cyber defenders. I mean, you see some talk with that. I know the Marine Corps, I've seen some of what they've put out there about perhaps Marine Auxiliary, because as I've heard from some of their folks, the people they need may not be who they've recruited in the past. And the same may go for the Air Force. What we know as our typical airmen that we have now may not be our typical airmen in the future to get that talent to defend in cyber. So that's what, what I would see in the future is a rethinking, not just of what we do and how we do, but who we put forward to achieve those objectives. Looking ahead, there are a lot of amazing things that the Air Force will do. I finished our conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Butler focused on that future and what he sees as having the biggest impact. This is Matt Butler's bold prediction for the next 20 years. I think there's going to be a huge increase in things that you cannot see, but are achieving effects nonetheless. In other words, when you look at World War II, Desert Storm, the global war on terror, it was kinetic bombs, missiles, uh, improvised explosive devices, object upon object, violent action. My bold prediction, just for me, are the things that we won't see. You're going to see, I think, a lot more directed energy. Uh, listeners can actually look in uh, this past month's Air Force magazine put out by the Air Force Association, where Air Force Research Labs just did a, another test of directed energy out of uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And they, they were testing some directed energy systems out there against small unmanned aerial vehicles or systems, drones, like your hobby drones and whatnot. So directed energy, lasers, space, cyber using the internet for effects as well as for defensive measures and the electromagnetic spectrum in general. I think there's going to be a lot more effects created in domains that you do not necessarily see. But that is my bold prediction from me personally, that I think that it's going to be more the stuff you don't see versus the things you do. And just as a reminder, these views are my own. They're my own personal views and do not represent the U.S. Air Force, Department of Defense, or U.S. government as a whole. We thank you again for listening to the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. From everyone here at the Council, we wish you a very safe, healthy, and happy holiday season.